Oh, Mother, how do I look? Is my hat straight? Stop fussing, dear. You're getting flushed. If only I had a mirror. Stand still now. Let me take a look at you. You're a picture, Mary, a perfect picture. Whoa, there. Easy now. Easy. Morning, ladies. Good morning. morning. Come on then, Gov. Mustn't keep the bride waiting. What's going on in there? Nothing to get worried about, you know, Gov. No worse than having a tooth out. (laughs) Here, what's happened? What is it, Gabby? Blimey. Well, who'd believe that? A Case of Identity by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle Dramatised for radio by Peter Mackey With Clive Medicine as Sherlock Holmes and Michael Williams as Dr John Watson And featuring Ralph Bates as James Windybank and Susanna Corbett as Mary Sutherland A Case of Identity It had been a particularly trying day for me. Up half the night with a most distressing case of splenic fever, followed by an endless stream of petty complaints that stretched my morning rounds well into late afternoon. It was with some relief, therefore, that I found Holmes Inn when I called at his Baker Street lodgings, and an even greater relief to sit in front of a cheerful fire and discuss the world in general and crime in particular. That, of course, is when the argument started. My dear fellow, life is infinitely stranger than anything which the mind of man could invent. I'm not so sure you are right there, Holmes. Why, if only to look in the newspaper. Hmm? To what purpose? To find reports which, more often than not, are just as predictable as the plots devised by any number of writers of crude fiction. You think so? I'm sure of it. If that were to be the case, which it most certainly is not, it would be because we do not dare to conceive the things which are really mere commonplace of existence. Oh, come now, you'll have to do better than that. If we could fly out of that window, hand in hand, hover over this great city, gently remove the roofs and peer in at the queer things which are going on, the strange coincidences, the plannings, the cross-purposes, the wonderful chain of events working through generations and leading to the most outre results. It would make all fiction with its foreseen conclusions most stale and unprofitable. There may be some grain of truth in what you suggest, and yet I'm not convinced of it. You see, in your position of unofficial advisor, as a helper, throughout three continents, I might add, to everybody who was absolutely puzzled, you were brought into contact with all that is strange and bizarre, whereas I... But here... Let us put this to a practical test. Today's newspaper. First heading we come to. What do you say? Pray proceed. Very well. Ah, Let's see now. There you are. A husband's cruelty to his wife. Half a column of print, but I know already that it is all perfectly familiar. The other woman, the drink, the push, the blow, the bruise, the sympathetic sister. Ah. What did I tell you, Holmes? Your example is an unfortunate one for your argument, Watson. This is the Dundas separation case, and, as it happens, I was engaged in clearing up some small points in connection with it. The husband was a teetotaler. Hmm? There was no other woman. 
and the conduct complained of was that he drifted into the habit of winding up every meal by taking out his false teeth <laughs> and hurling them at his wife, which, you will allow, is not an action likely to occur to the imagination of the average storyteller. No, <laughs> no possibly not. No. Uh, uh, take a pinch of snuff, Doctor, and acknowledge that I've scored over you and your example. <sighs> Thank you. I... Hmm. Handsome-looking box, Holmes. A little too rich for your taste, I would have thought. A little souvenir from the King of Bohemia in return for my assistance in the case of the Irene Adler papers. Ah, and the ring? From the reigning family of Holland, though the matter in which I served them was of such delicacy that I cannot confide it even to you. Now! Time to draw the blinds, I think. Oh, perhaps you'd like uh, to... You stay by the fire, Watson. <clears throat> Anything on hand just now? Uh, some ten or twelve. They are important, you understand, without being interesting. In these cases, save for one rather intricate matter which has been referred to me from Marseille, there's nothing which presents any features of interest. <laughs> It is possible, however, that I may have something better before very many minutes are over, for this is one of my clients, or I am much mistaken. Oh? Who would that be? On the pavement opposite. Fur boa, broad-brimmed hat with an equally large, curling red feather, and worn in what I believe is the current Duchess of Devonshire fashion that is tilted somewhat coquettishly over the ear. Ah, yes. Why do you think she may be a client? She seems nervous, hesitant. She keeps looking up at the window here. Yes, I see what you mean. She appears to be swaying as if she's not quite sure. She's taken the plunge. Certainly coming in our direction. Precisely. Now, if we give her just a few more moments to find our door... There. <laughs> Oscillation upon the pavement always means an affair to occur. Affair to Hmm. And here she comes indeed. Well done, Holmes. My dear fellow, I can hardly claim credit for predicting the predictable. Oh, really? Why not? But I've seen these symptoms before. She would like advice, but is not sure the matter is not too delicate for communication. And yet even here we may discriminate. When a woman has been seriously wronged by a man, she no longer oscillates, and the usual symptom is a broken bell wire. Ah, here we may take it that there is a love matter, but the maiden is not so much angry as perplexed or grieved. Mr. Sherlock Holmes? Yes. Do come in, Miss... Mary Sutherland. May I introduce my colleague, Dr. Watson? Good evening. Doctor. I think you will find this chair the most comfortable. Thank you. Not too pleasant an evening? No. Do you not find that with your short sight it is a, a little trying to do so much typewriting? I did at first, but now I know where the letters are without looking. You've heard about me, Mr. Holmes. <laughs> How could you know all that? <laughs> Never mind. It is my business to know things. Perhaps I have trained myself to see what others overlook. If not, why should you come to consult me? I came to you, sir, because I heard of you from Mrs. Etheridge, whose husband you found so easily when the police and everyone else had given him up for dead. Oh, yes. 
I remember reading about that. Oh, Mr. Holmes, I wish you would do as much for me. I'm not rich, but still I have a hundred a year in my own right, beside the little I make by the machine. And I would give it all to know what has become of Mr. Hosmer Angel. Why did you come away to consult me in such a hurry? Yes, I did bang out of the house, for it made me angry to see the easy way in which Mr. Winderbank, that is my father, took it all. He would not go to the police, and he would not go to you. And so at last, as he would do nothing, it made me so mad I just came right away. Your father, your stepfather, surely, since the name is different. Yes, my stepfather. I call him father, though that sounds funny too, for he is only five years and two months older than myself. And your mother is alive? Oh, yes. But I wasn't best pleased when she married again so soon after father's death, and a man who was nearly 15 years younger than herself. Tell me about your father. He was a plumber in the Tottenham Court Road, and he left a tidy business behind him which mother carried on with the foreman, Mr. Hardy. But when Mr. Winderbank came, he made her sell up, for he was very superior, being a traveller in wines. They got 4,700 for the goodwill and interest, which wasn't near as much as father could have got if he had been alive. Your own little income, does it come out of the business? Oh, no. It is quite separate, and was left me by my uncle Ned in Auckland. £2,500 in New Zealand stock at 4.5%. But I can only touch the interest. Since you draw so large a sum, as a hundred a year, and with what you earn into the bargain, you no doubt travel a little, indulge yourself in every way. I, I believe that a single lady can get by very nicely on an income of about £60. I could do with much less than that, Mr Holmes. But you understand that as long as I live at home, I don't wish to be a burden to them. They draw the interest every quarter, and I manage very well on my typewriting. It brings me tuppence a sheet, and I can often do from 15 to 20 sheets in a day. Mm. That's most commendable. You have made your position very clear to me. Kindly tell us now about your connection with Mr. Hosmer Angel. When father was alive, we used to get tickets for the Gasfitters' Ball, and then afterwards they remembered us and sent them to Mother. But Mr. Winterbank did not wish us to go. He never did wish us to go anywhere, and he would get quite mad if I wanted so much as to join a Sunday school treat. But this time I was set on going. Fortunately, the day before the ball, he went off to France upon the business of the firm. So Mother and I and Mr. Hardy, who used to be our foreman, we all went together. And it was there I met Mr. Hosmer Angel. Good evening, Miss Sutherland. Oh, good evening. May I sit at your table? Well, I, that is my mother. Forgive me. I waited until she took the floor for the Viennese waltz. But you must be wondering who I am. My name is Angel, Hosmer Angel. I knew your late father. Oh. 
Uh, in the line of business, that is. Really? Please, Mr. Angel, do sit down. Thank you. I trust you will forgive my approaching you like this, but your father often talked about you. It was as if... Well, as if I had already met you. Oh. <laughs> now I have. I feel I know you as a friend. Oh. I cannot recall father talking about you. A father's prerogative. I do not remember you coming to the house. I would never have been so presumptuous, Miss Sutherland. But I would have been so pleased. Hardly what you would call a, a forward sort of person, not being particularly well favoured, if you take my meaning. But, Mr. Angel... I, I had the quinsy when I was a child, you see, and swollen glands. I never got over that properly. People are always surprised at the way I speak. I think you have a very nice voice, Mr. Angel. Quiet and well-spoken. And my eyes, they are weak, too. That's why I wear these tinted glasses against the glare. Then we are two of a kind, Mr. Angel. I have to wear glasses, and though I can manage reasonably well on an occasion such as this, I am really quite short-sighted. Oh, we do seem to be alike in that respect. Everyone seems to be enjoying themselves. Yes. I'm I sure was wondering... <laughs> I, I do beg your pardon. But it was nothing. What were you going to say? Well, I, I, I was wondering, that is, I, I, I was wondering if you would permit me... Please continue, Mr. Angel. ...to call on you tomorrow evening. Oh, I... I thought perhaps we might go for a walk, if that would suit you. Why, yes. I should be very pleased for you to call. Shall we say... Seven o'clock. Seven o'clock would be most convenient. Oh, that's settled then. <laughs> I shall look forward to meeting you again, Miss Sutherland. You, you're not going already. If you would excuse me. But I'm sure my mother would be most pleased to see you. Tomorrow evening, perhaps. Of course. I, I shall look forward to it. Thank you. Good night, Miss Sutherland. Good night. Mr. Angel. Did your mother recall this Mr. Angel? Yes, she said she did remember him, and although she was disappointed at not seeing him on that occasion, she looked forward to renewing her acquaintance with him. I take it he did call? Oh, yes. He was such a gentleman. And there were further meetings? Almost every day. Well, evening. Hosmer was very shy, you see. He said he preferred to walk with me in the evenings, as he hated to be conspicuous. But I did not mind. That is, I became very fond of Hosmer, Mr. Angel. I know that Mother was taken with him, too, and everything would have been so perfect. But then Father arrived back from France. I will not have it. I am master in this house, and I will not have strangers coming in and out without so much as a by-your-leave as soon as my back is turned. But, Father, surely Hosmer could... That is enough. 
I may be old-fashioned, but I have always held a woman should be happy in her own family circle. She should not have to go outside it. But a woman needs her own circle to begin with. How can I find... I do not want to hear another word on this matter. As far as I'm concerned, Mr Angel is not to come to this house ever again. Did he make an attempt to see you? Father was going off to France again the following week, and Hosmer wrote and said it would be safer and better not to see each other again until he had gone. We could write in the meantime, and indeed he used to write every day. I took the letters in in the morning, so there was no need for Father to know. Were you engaged to the gentleman at this time? Oh, yes, after the very first walk we took. Hosmer, Mr Angel, was a cashier in an office in Leadenhall Street. Which office? That's the worst of it, Mr Holmes. I do not know. Where did he live? He slept on the premises. So where did you address your letters? To the Leadenhall Street post office, to be left till called for. Hosmer said if I sent them to his place of work, he would be chaffed by the other clerks about having letters from a lady. So I offered to typewrite them, the way he did his. But he said no, and that when I wrote them, they seemed to come from me. But when they were typewritten, he always felt that the machine had come between us. That shows you how fond he was of me, Mr Holmes, and the little things he would think of. It has long been an axiom of mine that the little things are infinitely the most important. What happened when Mr Windybank returned to France? Hosmer came to the house again and proposed that we should marry before Father came back. I must tell you, Mr Holmes, I had never seen him like this before. He was in such dreadful earnest. Swear it, you must swear it. But, Hosmer, I... Swear it here on the testament. But what could possibly... Swear that whatever happens, you will always be true to me. I swear it. There. It's for the best, dear, you'll see. Yes, of course. Now, Hosmer, the wedding. I thought Friday would be the most suitable. In the morning. That should do very nicely. Mary? Do you mean this Friday? Does that not suit you? Of course it suits her. But what about father? That is, we should not get married without telling him. Your father is in France. Perhaps we should wait till he returns. Best to tell him afterwards. But surely we should... You leave your father to me. I'll make it all right. But, Mother, he would not even let Hosmer into the house. He's hardly likely to approve of... I said leave your father to me. Now, I have told you, it will be all right. Hosmer? I think we must take our chance while we can. You will have no cause to regret this, my dear, I promise you. I know, Hosmer, but... Very well. If it is what you wish, we will be married on Friday. Your wedding was arranged then for the Friday. Was it to be in church? Yes, sir, but very quietly. It was to be at St Saviour's near King's Cross, and we were to have breakfast afterwards at the St Pancras Hotel. Hosmer came for us in a hansom, but as there were two of us, he put us both into it and stepped himself into a four-wheeler, which happened to be the only other cab in the street. We got to the church first, and when the four-wheeler drove up, we waited for him to step out. Come on, then, Gov. Mustn't keep the bride waiting. What's going on in there? Nothing to get worried about, you know, Gov. No worse than having a tooth out. Here, what's happened? What is it, Cabby? Blimey. But who'd believe that? He's gone. That was last Friday, Mr Holmes. I have not seen Hosmer since, nor have I received any communication from him. It seems to me that you've been very shamefully treated, Miss Sutherland. Oh, no, sir. He was too good and kind to leave me so. 
Why, all that morning he'd been saying to me that whatever happened, I was to be true, and that even if something quite unforeseen occurred to separate us, I was always to remember that I was pledged to him, and that he would claim his pledge sooner or later. It seems strange talk for a wedding morning, but what has happened since gives a meaning to it. Your own opinion is, then, that some unforeseen catastrophe has occurred to him? I believe he foresaw some danger, or else he would not have talked so. And then I think what he foresaw happened. But you have no notion as to what it could have been? None. How did your mother take the matter? She was very angry and said I was never to speak of Hosmer again. Ah. And your father? Did you tell him? Yes. And he seemed to think with me that something had happened and that I should hear of Hosmer again. As he said, what interest could anyone have in bringing me to the doors of the church and then leaving me? And yet what could have happened to him? And why does he not write? It drives me half mad to think of it. I'm out of my mind with worry. Mr. Holmes, please, you must find him for me. You must. I shall glance into the case for you, and I have no doubt we shall reach some definite result. Let the weight of the matter rest on me now, and do not let your mind dwell upon it further. Above all, try to let Mr. Hosmer Angel vanish from your memory as he has done from your life. Then you don't think I will see him again? I fear not. Then what has happened to him? You will leave that question in my hands. Very well. Before you go, Miss Sutherland, I should like an accurate description of Mr. Angel and any letters of his that you can spare. I advertised for him in last Saturday's Chronicle. I have the slip here, and four letters are my own address. Ah, thank you. Where is Mr. Windybank's place of business? He travels for Westhouse and Marbank, the great claret importers of Fenchurch Street. Uh, thank you. You have made your statement very clearly. Uh, please try and remember the advice which I've given you. Let the whole incident be a sealed book and do not allow it to affect your life. You are very kind, Mr. Holmes, but I cannot do that. I shall be true to Hosmer. He shall find me ready when he comes back. For all the preposterous hat and the vacuous face, there was something noble in the simple faith of our visitor which compelled our respect. With a promise to come again whenever she might be summoned, she laid her little bundle of papers upon the table and went her way. My old friend was silent for a few moments. Then he took down from the rack the old and oily clay pipe, which was to him a counsellor. And then leant back in his chair with the thick blue cloud wreaths spinning up from him and a look of infinite languor in his face. Quite an interesting study, that maiden. Huh? I found her more interesting than her little problem, which, by the way, is rather a trite one. You'll find parallel cases if you consult my index. Andover in 77 springs to mind, and it was something of the sort at The Hague last year. Hmm. Old as the idea is, however, there were one or two details which were quite new to me, but the maiden herself was most instructive. Uh, you appear to read a good deal upon her, which was quite invisible to me. Not invisible, but unnoticed, Watson. I can never bring you to realise the importance of sleeves, the suggestiveness of thumbnails, or the great issues that may hang from a bootlace. Uh, I think you may find you sell me short there, Holmes. Huh? Then what did you gather from the woman's appearance? Hmm? Describe it. Well... Apart from the hat and the burr, her jacket was black, with black beads sewn upon it. 
and a fringe of little black jet ornaments. Her dress was brown, rather darker than coffee colour, with a little purple plush at the neck and sleeves. Her gloves were greyish and were worn through at the right forefinger. Her boots I didn't observe. She had small, round, hanging gold earrings and a general air of being fairly well-to-do in a vulgar, comfortable, easy-going way. <laughs> ah, upon my word, Watson, you're coming along wonderfully. Thank you, Holmes. You've really done very well indeed. True, you've missed everything of importance, but you've hit upon the method and you've a quick eye for colour. <sighs> Never trust to general impressions, but concentrate yourself upon details. Now, my first glance is always at a woman's sleeve. In a man, it's perhaps better first to take the knee of the trouser. I did observe the worn glove. Uh, indeed, but you failed to see that both glove and finger were stained with violet ink, an obvious indication that she'd written a note before leaving home but after being fully dressed. And it must have been this morning or the mark would not remain clear upon the finger. <sighs> and what else? The plush on her sleeves, a most useful material for showing traces. The double line above the wrist where the typewriter's presses against the table was beautifully defined. The sewing machine of the hand type leaves a similar mark, but only on the left arm and on the side farthest from the thumb. And when I glanced at her face and saw the dint of the pince-nez at either side of her nose, I ventured a remark upon short sight and typewriting which seemed to surprise her. It surprised me. Oh, but surely it was obvious, hmm? I was then interested, on glancing down, to observe that though the boots which she was wearing were not unlike each other, they were really odd. One having a slightly decorated toe cap, the other a plain one. One was buttoned only in the two lower buttons out of five, and the other at the first, third and fifth. Now, when you see a young lady otherwise neatly dressed that has come away from home with odd boots half-buttoned, it is no great deduction to see that she came away in a hurry. Uh, uh, I suppose not. All this is, is quite amusing, of course, though rather elementary. Now, we must get back to business, Watson. Would you mind reading me the advertised description of Mr. Hosmer Angel? Um, certainly. Ah, let me see now. Uh, missing on the morning of the 14th, a gentleman named Hosmer Angel, about five feet seven inches in height, strongly built, sallow complexion, black hair, a little ball in the centre, bushy black side whiskers and moustache, tinted glasses and slight infirmity of speech was dressed when last seen in black frock coat faced with silk with brown gaiters over elastic-sided boots known to have been employed in an office in Leadenhall Street and it was yes, bringing... oh, yes. as to the letters mm. oh, well, that's very commonplace absolutely no clue enough to Mr. Angel say that he quotes Balzac once there is one remarkable point however which will no doubt strike you they are typewritten and not only that the signature is also typewritten. Now look at the neat little Hosmer Angel at the bottom. Mm -hmm. There is a date, you see, but no superscription except Leadenhall Street, which is rather vague. The point about the signature, however, is very suggestive. In fact, we may call it conclusive. Of what? My dear fellow, is it possible you do not see how strongly it bears upon the gate? Uh, I cannot say that I do. Unless... Unless he wished to be able to deny his signature if an action for breach of promise were instituted. No, that was not the point. However, I shall write two letters which 
should settle the matter, after which, my dear fellow, as we can do nothing until we have the replies, I suggest we put our little problem upon the shelf for the interim. I had had so many reasons to believe in my friend's subtle powers of reasoning and extraordinary energy in action that I felt he must have some solid grounds for the assured and easy demeanour with which he treated the singular mystery which he had been called upon to fathom. Once only had I known him to fail, in the case of the King of Bohemia and of the Irene Adler photograph. But when I look back to the weird business of the sign of four and the extraordinary circumstances connected with a study in Scarlet, I felt it would be a strange tangle indeed which he could not unravel. I left him then still puffing at his black clay pipe, with the conviction that, when I came again on the next evening, I would find that he held in his hands all the clues which would lead up to the identity of the disappearing bridegroom of Miss Mary Sutherland. The whole of the next day my attention was engaged by a professional case of great gravity, and it was not until close upon six o'clock that I found myself free to spring into a hansom and drive to Baker Street. Half afraid that I might be too late to assist at the denouement of the mystery, I raced up to our rooms only to find Sherlock Holmes alone and half asleep, with his long, thin form curled up in the recesses of his armchair. In addition, a formidable array of bottles and test tubes, together with the pungent smell of hydrochloric acid, suggested he had spent his day in the chemical work which was so dear to him. Oh, you know, Holmes, <laughs> I thought I'd never managed to get here. Oh, but you have, and your timing is impeccable. Ah, uh, you have solved it then? Yes, by sulfate of birita. No, 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 the mystery. Uh, oh, oh, that. I thought you were referring to the salt that I've been working on. No, no. Well, there never was any mystery in the matter, though, as I said yesterday, some of the details are of interest. The only drawback is that there's no law, I fear, that can touch the scoundrel. So, you know what has become of Hosmer Angel? Yes. Huh? Who is he? And what was the object of his deserting Miss Sutherland? Uh, that would be the girl's stepfather. He was written to say he'd be here at six. Mr. James Windybank? Yes? Sherlock Holmes, please come in. Thank you. My colleague, Dr. Watson. Good evening. The man who had entered was a sturdy, middle-sized fellow, some 30 years of age, clean-shaven and sallow-skinned, with a bland, insinuating manner, and a pair of wonderfully sharp and penetrating grey eyes. He shot a questioning glance at each of us, placed his shiny top hat upon the sideboard, and sidled down into the nearest chair. I'm afraid that I'm a little late, but I'm not quite my own master, you know. I understand, just as I'm sure you appreciate the need to clear up this somewhat distressful affair. I should be only too pleased to help in any way I can, but first I feel I should say that I'm sorry Miss Sutherland has troubled you about this little matter. I think it's far better not to wash linen of this sort in public. Oh? And where should it be washed, Mr Windybank? It was quite against my wishes that she came, you know. But she's a very excitable, impulsive girl, as you may have noticed. 
and she's not easily controlled when she's made her mind on a point. Of course, I did not mind you so much as you were not connected with the official police. But it is not pleasant having a family misfortune like this noised abroad, and a useless expense too, for how could you possibly find this... this Hosmer angel? On the contrary, I have every reason to believe that I will succeed in finding him. But that is... I'm delighted to hear it. Mr. Windybank, I have here a typewritten letter from you, the one in which you made an appointment with me for six o'clock. You know, it is a curious thing that a typewriter has really quite as much individuality as a man's handwriting. Unless they are quite new, no two machines write exactly alike. Some letters get more worn than others, somewhere only on one side. Now, I perceive in this note of yours, Mr. Windybank, that in every case there is some little slurring of the letter E and a slight defect in the tail of the R. There are 14 other characteristics, but those are the more obvious. We do all our correspondence with this machine at the office. No doubt it is a little worn. And I will show you now what is really a very interesting study. You know, Watson, I think I might even write a little monograph on the subject one of these days. The typewriter and its relation to crime. Oh, yes. Splendid idea. Hmm. We shall see. Mr. Windybeck, I have here four letters which purport to come from the missing man. They are all typewritten. In each case, not only are the E's slow, of the R's tailless, but you will observe, if you care to use my magnifying lens, that the 14 other characteristics to which I've alluded are there as well. I cannot waste time over this sort of fantastic talk. If you can catch the man, catch him. And let me know when you've done it. Certainly, I let you know now. I have caught him. How dare you, sir? I demand that you unlock that door. It won't do, really. It won't. There is no possible getting out of it, Windybank. It is quite too transparent. And it was a very bad compliment when you said it was impossible for me to solve so simple a question. I... What I, I really... That's right. Sit down and let us talk it over. It's not actionable, you know. I'm very much afraid that it is not. But between ourselves, Wendy Bank, it was as cruel, selfish and heartless a trick in a petty way as has ever come before me. Now, let me just run over the course of events and you will contradict me if I go wrong. Wendy Bank sat huddled up in his chair, with his head sunk upon his breast, like one who is utterly crushed. For his part, Holmes stuck his feet up on the corner of the mantelpiece, and, leaning back with his hands in his pockets, began talking, rather to himself, as it seemed, than to us. The man married a woman very much older than himself for her money, and he enjoyed the use of the money of the daughter as long as she lived with them. It was a considerable sum for people in their position, and the loss of it would have made a serious difference, so it was worth an effort to preserve it. The daughter was of a good, amiable disposition, affectionate and warm-hearted in her way, so that with her fair personal advantages and her little income, she would not be allowed to remain single long. Now, her marriage would mean, of course, the loss of a hundred a year. So what does her stepfather do to prevent it? He takes the obvious course of keeping her at home and forbidding her to seek the company of people of her own age. But she becomes restive insisted upon her rights and finally announced her positive intention of going to a certain ball. What does her clever stepfather do then? He conceives an idea more creditable to his head than to his heart. With the connivance and assistance of his wife, he disguised himself, 
covered those keen eyes with tinted glasses, masked the face with a moustache and a pair of bushy whiskers, and sank that clear voice into an insinuating whisper. Good Lord. Doubly secure on account of the girl's short sight, thus he appears as Mr. Hosmer Angel and keeps off other lovers by making love himself. I don't believe it. It's monstrous. It was only a joke at first. We never thought she would have been so carried away. Very likely not. However, that may be. The young lady was very decidedly carried away. You may remember, Watson, she really did believe her stepfather was in France. So the suspicion of treachery never for uh, an instant entered her mind. Yes, of course. Hmm. So she was flattered by the gentleman's attentions, and the effect was increased by the loudly expressed admiration of her mother. Then Mr. Angel began to call for it was obvious that the matter should be pushed as far as it would go if a real effect were to be produced. There were meetings and an engagement which would finally secure the girl's affections from turning towards anyone else. But the deception could not be kept up forever. Those pretended journeys to France were rather cumbrous. The thing to do was clearly to bring the business to an end in such a dramatic manner that it would leave a permanent impression on the young lady's mind and prevent her from looking upon any other suitor for some time to come. Which was why he made her swear that vow of fidelity on the testament. Precisely. Mm. And why there were also allusions to the possibility of something happening on the very morning of the wedding. James Windybank wished Miss Sutherland to be so bound to Hosmer Angel and so uncertain as to his fate that for ten years to come she would not listen to another man. As far as the church door he brought her, and then, as he could go no further, he conveniently vanished away by the old trick of stepping in at one door of a four-wheeler and out at the other. I think that was the chain of events, Mr. Windybank. It may be so, or it may not. But if you are so very sharp, you ought to be sharp enough to know it is you who are breaking the law now, not me. I have done nothing actionable from the first. But as long as you keep that door locked, you lay yourself open to an action for assault and illegal constraint. Then we must not allow that to happen. There. As you say, the law cannot touch you. Yet there was never a man who deserved punishment more. Move away from that if door! If that young lady has a brother or a friend, he ought to lay her whip across your shoulders. You lay one finger on me, I'll have the law on you. By Jove, it's not part of my duties to my client, but here's a hunting crop handy. And I think I shall just treat myself to bring it down on your back. Oh, dear! Scoundrel! Run, Winnipeg! Run, you blackguard! A cold-blooded scoundrel, if ever I saw one. There he goes, running down the road as if all hell had been let loose. I tell you, Watson, that fellow will rise from crime to crime until he does something very bad and ends on the gallows. Yeah, no more than he deserves. I regret that he necessarily remains unpunished in this particular instance. Still, in some respects, the case has not been totally devoid of interest. Yeah. Even now, I cannot entirely see all the steps of your reasoning. Hmm? Well, then, let me enlighten you. <clears throat> it was obvious from the first that this Mr. Hosmer Angel must have some strong object for his curious conduct. Mm -hmm. 
And it was equally clear that the only man who profited by the incident, as far as we could see, was the stepfather. Yes, I can see that, but what exactly set you on to him? The fact that the two men were never together. One always appeared when the other was away. That was suggestive. So were the curious voice, tinted spectacle. To say nothing of his bushy whiskers. Exactly. Mm. And my suspicions were all confirmed by his peculiar action in typewriting his signature, which of course inferred that his handwriting was so familiar to Miss Sutherland that she would recognise even the smallest sample of it. So you see, all these isolated facts together with many minor ones, all pointed in the same direction. Yes, I see. But how did you verify them? Well, having once spotted my man, it was easy to get corroboration. I knew where he worked, so, having taken the printed description, I eliminated everything from it which could be the result of a disguise, whiskers, glasses, voice, and sent it to the firm with a request that they should inform me whether it answered the description of any of their travellers. I already noticed the peculiarities of the typewriter, and I wrote to the man himself at his business address, asking him if he would come here. As I expected, his reply was typewritten and revealed the same trivial but uh, characteristic defects I had previously noted in Hosmer Angel's correspondence. The same post brought me a letter from Westhouse and Marbank of Fenchurch Street to say that the description tallied in every respect with that of their employee, James Windy Bank of Voila too. Yes, quite. Well, that's that then. You can chalk up another success. Success? Mm. Hardly the word I would have chosen. Admittedly, the law can't touch the blackguard, but he'd certainly think twice before trying anything of this sort again. Yes, let us hope so. I'm not sure that I want to be present when you tell Miss Sutherland the truth, though. Her own stepfather. Huh. <laughs> As for that mother of hers, well... Hardly surprised me if she left home after this and took her money with her. <laughs> Served them right, I say. Hey, Holmes. Holmes? I never did establish whether Sherlock Holmes ever acquainted his client with the truth of her situation. Even had he done so, I doubt very much if she would have believed him. Indeed, it would not surprise me to learn that even now, so many years after those bizarre events took place, she is still waiting for the return of Hosmer Angel. I must have referred Holmes to the matter at some stage, however, as I recorded a comment he made on the affair. A particularly apt comment, I thought. You may remember the old Persian saying, There is danger for him who taketh the tiger cub, and danger also for whoso snatches a delusion from a woman. There is as much sense in Havith as in Horace, and as much knowledge of the world. Mm -hmm.
In A Case of Identity, Sherlock Holmes was played by Clive Madison and Dr. Watson by Michael Williams. Mary Sutherland was played by Susanna Corbett and James Windybank by Ralph Bates, with Oriole Smith as Mrs. Windybank and Ian Lindsay as the cabbie. The violinists were Leonard Friedman and Alexander Balinescu. A Case of Identity was dramatised for radio by Peter Mackey and directed by Enid Williams. <laughs>